The following podcast is recommended for people 18 and over as it discusses the production and consumption of alcohol. A podcast one production. Shoeys, tinnies, frothies, I've had them all. But not in a million years did I think I'd be sitting here ordering gin from Kangaroo Island or telling the bartender, I only drink whiskey from sustainable distilleries. I've always enjoyed a good drink, but this is something else. This feels like the Aussie spirit, bottled. (laughs) That's a good one. I wonder why it feels so Aussie to enjoy a drink. Maybe it's something in our history. Ah, I know who'll know. Chris Middleton. Oi, Chris! Chris has been in the spirit industry for like 30 years. He'll have done some research. And who needs Google when you've got a mate like that? Chris! You study alcohol like it's a science. So when does the first drink show up in Aussie history? When the first explorers came into Australia, they were making notes that each Aboriginal community had different ways of making a lightly fermented beverage. So in Sydney, they were using bottle brush and the pollen coming from the grevilleas. It would make a light alcohol about 3% ABV. In Tasmania, they're using the sap of one of the trees that was quite a lot of sugar. So wherever you've got sugar, you've got alcohol. So the Aborigines were bringing the practice of alcohol from probably the Middle East through Africa, Middle East, in through Asia into Australia and adapting to the local flora here, which provided a number of resources for making forms of alcohol. So there was was a history of alcohol here, although very minor, very incidental. We're not too sure whether it was recreational, ceremonial, what role it played. We have no knowledge because it was never reported, but it was there. Dave! Dave! Let's get David Hunt over here. Mate, you're a historian. Do you know when Aussies first started getting on the source? We were drunk before the first settlers actually arrived because we were British and the British liked to drink. So before the first convicts and their guards came to Australia, uh, we were already on the Terps. So just before Australia was uh, invaded settled, colonised, whatever you want in 1788, it had been planned that New South Wales would be a dry colony. Lord Sydney said, there'll be no drinking here. But the sailors who were sailing out said, we're not having any of that. And they cut a deal. They said, we're going to take our booze to this new colony, but the convicts won't be allowed to drop. Any idea what they were drinking back then? So the first distilled spirit that arrives in Australia probably came out with the Batavia um, because the Dutch would bring... Geneva, which is a form of malted gin with juniper berries and cones used in it for flavouring. But the most interesting one was William Dampier, who was a pirate, and he came out twice to Australia, to Western Australia in the Signet, up in the, up in the Kimberley area. Prior to him becoming um, an explorer for the, for the British government, he was a privateer in the Caribbean where he invested in a cane plantation and made rum. And on his vessel, he brought rum out. So the first consumption of spirit that we know of on the mainland of Australia was rum, probably from Jamaica, that he'd brought out as stocks and stores um, for his crew. So when the sailors brought it over, how did people buy it? 
one of the unique things about New South Wales was there was no currency. And so you've got people trading goods for services. And rum rapidly becomes the most preferred trading good. There's this whole underground trade in rum. And David Collins, the Deputy Judge Advocate, says that the convicts preferred receiving liquor for labour to every other article of provisions or clothing that could be offered them. And so the idea of prohibition in the first settlement was that the sailors could, could have a drink and the convicts couldn't. But, of course, that was completely unrealistic. And so the sailors start trading rum to the convicts for, for sex, for labour, for anything. So rum at the earliest stages of settlement is part of this barter economy that develops. And so we have this entire underground economy that is fuelled by rum. So rum was the currency in Sydney for a bit. What a world that must have been. That's Melanie from the Hyde Park Barracks Museum over there. She's always bringing in old convict-related things into the bar from her work. Uh, What's that you've got in your hand there, Mel? So I'm holding a bottle at the moment. It's probably about the size of maybe half a wine bottle and round like a wine bottle. This shape is known as a porter bottle. These types of black glass bottles came into the colony filled with alcohol. These were how um, spirits such as rum and gin were imported into the colony. (laughs) Typical. We even put our old bottles of booze in museums here. Dave said that some convicts managed to drink alcohol even though they weren't allowed to. Did that happen a lot? Alcohol was definitely a part of the convicts' lives and we have hundreds of objects that tell us that. We have complete bottles um, that would have held spirits such as rum, um, either Bengal or Jamaica rum that was being imported into the colony or Dutch gin that was being imported into the colony. We also know from these kind of ceramic bottles, these were bottles that probably held either ginger beer or beer that was being brewed in the colony. Um, So we have the physical remains or the physical evidence in terms of bottles that were discovered within the Hyde Park barracks. So we know that convicts who were here were consuming alcohol, despite that being pretty much against the rules. (laughs) I can't believe they expected convicts to play by the rules. I heard they had a secret language that they used in the barracks as well. The convicts actually had their own language, which is termed flash language. It's like a secret code or um, nicknames for for types of people that they could use and and the authorities wouldn't really know what they were talking about. There was a couple of terms that actually relate to alcohol use and abuse. Um, One of them is flawed. So being flawed is, is drinking so much alcohol that you actually are falling over. Um, another of the terms is spoonie, and a spoonie is a man who's drunk so much that his behaviour is actually quite disgusting. So there, in the flash language, there's, there's a lot of terms that relate to, to drinking. I've definitely heard of flawed before. Is it anywhere else in our language, Dave? If you actually have a look at the very name of Sydney itself, named after Lord Sydney, uh, who was the Secretary of State for War and the Colonies, Sydney, the name derives from Saint-Denis, who was a French saint, who we would know as Saint Dionysius. And that name goes back to the Greek god of wine, Dionysius. Saint Dionysius was the patron saint of headaches and hangovers. So that whole essence of getting on the turps, enjoying a drink, 
is in the very name of Sydney itself. Wait, what happened when they ran out of what they brought over? How did they start distilling? Perhaps the first distiller was a guy by the name of Surgeon White. He was a bit of a drinker, um, but also responsible for all the medication. And they ran out of peppermint. Peppermint was a good product for digestive, for the crew and for convicts. And so he was the first to distill the peppermint gum. So this was in a matter of months of arriving in Sydney Cove, we see the first distillation, a very small bench still by, by the surgeon who is here. The next stage really happens in 1792. So the fleet's been here for four years. There were two brothers that came out as sailors on the HMS Sirius. They were the Webb brothers. One of the brothers returned home to get his wife and to buy a pot still and come back to Australia to settle with his brother. In the meantime, his brother was given land at Parramatta. It was the first land ever given to white people by the governor. And the Webbs planted wheat. And using the pot still in 1792, they were the first to distill a grain-based spirit. Because there was no market there and no stores, they sold this what was known as a diabolical spirit. It would have been poorly made, very low yield, barely drinkable, um, and to prevent them putting into circulation, the government bought it, put it in the government stores, and it was probably blended with the rums that were coming in as being part of the, the provisions of the colony. Even though the colony is operating under British law, there was no prohibition in making alcohol, but it was not on the radar of the officials, but it was starting to find root amongst free settlers and some of the convicts. There's in fact a convict who lived in 1800 down in the Botanic Gardens and he had a secret still there. And when he was caught, he was given 100 lashes and sent to Norfolk Island. So we're now having governors that come out that are not as liberal as Arthur was. They're seeing temperance and they're worried about alcohol and drunkenness, particularly in a colony dominated by males and they're either convicts or military managing them and a few free settlers that are around the edges. Okay, so we have convicts, military and free settlers running right on grog. Then what happened, David? Then in 1740, there is a guy called Vice Admiral Edward Vernon who was in charge of provisioning the Royal Navy. And he's noticing all of these sailors are getting pretty pissy. They're given a pint of rum a day, they're drinking it neat, they're bumping into masts and falling overboard and he says, right, we're going to water down your rum ration. And he comes up with something that we now know today as grog. And we know it as grog because Vernon's nickname was Old Grogham or Old Grog because he wore a grogham coat, which is a coat made of silk and wool. His name was Old Grogham. And from that we get the word grog, which is a mixture of rum and water, and that's what sailors were drinking most of the time. However, when rum and grog come to Australia, that was pretty much what everybody was drinking. And we knew all spirits collectively as rum because that was the strong stuff, that was the stuff we really, really liked, and we knew other alcohol or alcohol more generally as grog. And we still have the phrase today, go out and get on the grog. And we normally mean beer. But grog came to be used in Australia and New Zealand as a word for alcohol generally, a very different meaning from its old Royal Navy days.
Okay, so let me get this right, Dave. Rum was our money. Our language was made up of drinking terms and we even had a rebellion for our rum. We don't do military coups or revolutions like other people. The Americans have got the midnight ride of Paul Revere, the Declaration of Independence. The Russians have got millions purged, blood on the streets. The French have got the execution of a king and the queen. And we've got a bit of a sing-along and a crazy chick with a small paper umbrella. And that's what I love about Australian history. It's 1808 and Bly is trying to seize control for the government away from these corrupt soldiers. And he charges John MacArthur for the illegal importation of stills to brew moonshine. Um, Bly gets no luck at all because all of the jurors in New South Wales were soldiers and none of them would convict one of their own. So you've got a series of court cases where Bly is trying to get John MacArthur done over. It's not working. And when he threatens the jurors who are meant to be hearing a case against MacArthur with treason for not refusing to hear the case, the whole military rises up and the New South Wales Corps marches on Government House in Australia's only military coup on the 26th of January, 1808. And it's a really unusual coup because there are no weapons drawn, the soldiers are singing and playing musical instruments, the only armed resistance to the Rum Rebellion is in the form of Mary Putland, Bly's daughter, and she stands at the gates of Government House and assaults the soldiers with her parasol. That's it. That's the only armed resistance. The soldiers march on Government House and they overthrow Governor Bly. At the time, it was known as the Great Rebellion of 1808. And in the 1850s, some teetotaling bastard called William Howard, who doesn't like a drink, says, I'm going to blame everything that went wrong in Australian history on alcohol. So he renamed the Great Rebellion the Rum Rebellion. And that name really stuck. And uh, although there was an argument about who would control the spirit trade and other things, that was only a very, very small part of the Rum Rebellion. But it was the teetotaling wowsers from later on who said, nah, if it was bad, if there was a coup, we got to blame alcohol. Let's call it the Rum Rebellion. <laughs> so it wasn't even about the rum. It seems like there were heaps of colourful characters around in those days. You must have had a great time going back through all of these old stories of what people were up to. What's the best thing you've read from back then? The first cocktail ever included in an Australian cookbook is attributed to a bloke called Lieutenant Governor Thomas Davey, known as Mad Tom, to friends and critics alike, who was the Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land or Tasmania between 1813 and 1816. Davey is an absolute pisshead. He's an alcoholic. And ironically, he's married to a woman called Temperance Wines. Uh, he didn't let that stop him. When he arrives in Hobart, he gets off the boat and he delays going to Government House and he stops off at the first pub, has a drink, meets people, gets a bit tipsy. And in Australia's first cookbook, he is recognised as the creator of the Blow My Skull cocktail. He apparently mixed two pints of boiling water, one pint of rum and half a pint of brandy. And that was his tipple. And Lachlan Macquarie described him as being in a constant state of intemperance and having an extraordinary degree of frivolity and low buffoonery. So he was a drunken fool. 
but he did give us our first cocktail, and for that we should all be grateful. Boiling water, rum and brandy. Uh, no thanks, mate. I'd rather keep my skull intact. Chris, do you have any other characters for us? There was a distiller in Victoria at Abbotsford on the Yarra River called Henry Preston. In fact, the Prestons came out from Liverpool and they owned the largest whisky distillery in Europe, in Liverpool, in the 19th century. They came out renaming their distillery Vauxhall after their distillery in, in Victoria. And the Vauxhall distillery operated from, I think it was the 1890s until just after Federation. But the customs officers in Victoria were suspicious that a lot of the whisky was disappearing or not being accounted for. So they got a policeman who was originally a Scot who came out here, went into surveillance. And for five months, this policeman went into like Sherlock Holmes mode. He, uh, he would monitor this location as an angler, as a derelict, as a preacher, as a salesman, as a land surveyor. So he was constantly in disguise watching the premises. At night, he was consorting with derelicts, the ruffians in the pub, trying to gain intel. And eventually he worked out what they were doing. When the customs officer left the still to check the bond room, they got a pipe and they sent it into a barrel, hid it in the toilet. When the barrel was filled before the guy got back to the still, they rolled it round the corner and hid it. So every day they were stealing a barrel of whiskey underneath the customs officers. So how do we get to where we are now with all of these small craft distilleries popping up everywhere around rural Australia? The change happens in Tasmania. What Tasmania did is they sought permission for themselves to have a smaller still. What Bill Lark did is he put a case to his local member to say he'd like to start a small distillery and um, the first experimental, in a sense, craft operations start in Tasmania and they are making whiskey and spirits and liqueurs and gin and it starts to then bubble up all over the country because the wave had broken and it had challenged the large distillery concept by challenging the Vintners licence and other, other things that existed since the 1906 Spirit Act, which moderated our the Commonwealth's approach to distillation. Ah, the so-called godfather of whiskey, Bill Lark. I was wondering when his name would come up. Oh, let's call him over here. Hey, Bill! Bill! Come here and tell us how yourself and Lynn got into whiskey. Yeah, whiskey was something I, I started enjoying with my father-in-law, um... I was actually on, on a fishing trip up um, in the highlands of Tasmania and I'd caught a beautiful four-pound brown trout one morning. And so we drove back into Boswell and Max grabbed a table and a barbecue and Max had a bottle of Glenfiddich sitting on the table and two glasses and I thought, he knows exactly what we're going to do. By the time Lynn and Margaret had arrived, we'd probably enjoyed enough whisky to start saying things like, why doesn't somebody make whisky in Tasmania? We know we've got good barley, we've been making good beer for a long time, the water is sensational... We just figured the climate must be okay for maturing whiskey. And we thought it, it should be that simple. Why hasn't anybody ever ever done it? And um, when Lynn came, uh, turned up, um, you know, we were sort of saying these things and she said, well, um, if you get a still, I'd like to make gin. <laughs> so let's give it a go. And it goes to the point where we, we talked about it and there was a lot of enthusiasm and we picked up a little still at an auction um, we started distilling and all my neighbours, I think, were starting to get a bit <laughs> concerned at what was going on under my house. And we thought we'd better go and get a licence. And we walked into the local customs office in Hobart, um, told them what we wanted, and they were really excited. They Somebody made me a cup of tea and we sat around and 
we were reading the Distillation Act of 1901 and um, sadly the Act was written at a time when the world only sort of thought of big industrial operations, not boutique, no one knew about boutique wineries or boutique breweries, let alone boutique distilleries. Uh, and I just thought, well, that's the end of it. But then by chance I was walking past um, uh, our local federal member's office in Hobart. I didn't know him, but I saw him in there, so I went in and introduced myself and discovered that he liked whiskey. And he got straight on the phone to Barry Jones in Canberra for me, who was the Minister for Customs, Science and Small Business, and Barry Jones loves whiskey. And uh, he said to uh, Duncan, tell Bill to go back and apply for his licence. In the meantime, I'll change the regulations to allow small stills. And so in 1992, Barry did that. And we were able to go and get the first licence issued in Tasmania since 1839. And I guess um, arguably the first craft licence in Australia to start making whiskey and other spirits. But was it tough learning to distill from scratch? Having said that we were going to try and make whiskey and eventually ending up with a licence, um, I, I was really worried, what would the Scottish industry think of some stupid little colonial guy trying to make whiskey? Um, and I really loved my whiskey and I didn't want to offend them or, or upset them. But within two weeks of getting my licence, I had a phone call from John Grant from Glen Farkless. And he's, it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm half asleep and, oh, hello, John, how can I help you? And it's, uh, no, Bill, how can I help you? I've... My distributor in Hobart tells me, you've got a licence to make whisky. Can I please help you make good whisky? And it's been like that ever since. All of the distilleries are the same. They just want to help us. And so I guess when people came to me and said, Bill, we want to set up a distillery, rather than think of them as potential competitors, I thought of them firstly as friends and um, people that would be uh, colleagues. And on my own, I would only ever be a novelty. But if I had a number of people making good spirits around the country, that we could end up with an industry one day. I started off the night thinking I'd be less Aussie if I turned my back on the beer. But it turns out we were on the rum and whiskey from the start. It seems like we've pretty much come full circle then. We started off making our own spirits and now, because of you Bill, small craft distillers can start producing their own Aussie whiskey, rum, gin and vodka again. Bill, it's getting late, but I'd love to pick your brains a bit more tomorrow about how you got started. Can I meet you same time, same place tomorrow to hear a bit more? Great. See you then. The Aussie Spirit was produced by Podcast One Australia in collaboration with Nip of Courage. It was presented and sound designed by me, Matt Dwyer, produced by Alex Mitchell and written and developed by Jennifer Goggin. Sound production and music was by Matt Nikolic. For more info, go to nipofcourage.com.